Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here, and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. We're back with another true crime episode. That means that me and my boy, Eris Pina, are talking about boxing, history, crime, just all sorts of icky, wild stuff. Eris, are you ready for this, man? I'm very ready. Pat, how the hell are you doing today, man? <laughs> I'm, I'm honestly, I'm excited, dude. I, I really enjoy doing these true crime shows, like... I enjoy kind of, I mean, as you know, dude, every time we do one of the history type of shows, I enjoy, I guess, teaching or just relaying the information and mm -hmm. all of the crazy stuff that we find out from these stories and uh, not to downplay them because obviously the true crime part of it is for the most part, somebody died and I don't want to damper it very early on, but that's the whole nature of this show or these true crime shows. So just kind of get ready for it. You know what I mean? Absolutely, man. And like we've discussed before amongst ourselves or just telling other people, these are the stories that aren't really told anymore. You know, like a few of them are very famous. Like there's a lot in any sport, any type of industry, whatever it is, there's very famous dark stories that have been told over and over and there have been movies and documentaries and books made on them. Right. But we try to go a little bit deeper with it, man. Like, you know, there's a lot of stories out there that haven't been told, whether they're good ones or not, but they're interesting nonetheless. And since they're involved in boxing, it's up to us to really put it out there in the forefront. And this is one of them. So, and and also, I think telling the stories—it's not just I. We're we're taking the care not to tell the stories like a couple of assholes and exactly. trying to put put them in the proper context. You know, the <laughs> social and socioeconomic yeah, yeah, yeah. context. So, um, you know, that's that's what we're here to do today. And actually, this episode was totally your idea. I knew kind of of this story but only because i think you had told me it so <laughs> i mean honestly and and this is the kind of thing where like if somebody were to ask well how do you guys come up with ideas for this for uh these episodes that you're doing for the true crime stuff i'm gonna tell you straight out like eight out of every 10 like 80 percent of them is like Eris hits me up and says, Hey dude, I remember this 1994 ring magazine. Somebody mentioned blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> let me look that up. And sure enough, it's like some just wild story. And this is pretty similar here. Eris hit me up and said something about Ruben Ratman Bell, who was yeah. a 1990s middleweight. And, uh, he, his story, long story short, contendership, fairly well-known at the time in the Washington DC area and winds up getting gunned down just as his career seems as if it's going to take off. So it's, it's a crazy, it's, it's crazy, man. So we're, we're going back now to the mid nineties to mid to late nineties. All right. And at that point in time in boxing, Washington DC, the DC Maryland area was kind of a hotbed for boxing. I would say, would you agree? 
I mean, they, yeah. they had a lot going on for it. You had, as champions, you had, for example, Mark Johnson, um, Sean Bay Mitchell. Um, off the top of my head, Mark Johnson, Sean Bay Mitchell, William Joppy, Keith Holmes. Those were four guys right off the jump. And then for contenders, you had guys like Daryl Coley, who was a top welterweight contender who was featured on television often. Um, Jerry Ballard, who was a heavyweight, not quite top contender, but a French contender on the verge of being one before he had an ill-fated end. And then the man we're about to discuss today, Ruben Ratman Bell, who was a middleweight back then, who had a lot of promise, but his career, like you just mentioned, was kind of cut short because of circumstances that happened that we're about to get into. But the story of how to get how that happened and where how it got to this point is crazy. Like this is you know not so much his boxing career. His boxing career now, well, the way his story plays out, his boxing career almost plays second fiddle to what went on with him on the streets and everything like that. How he grew up, like it's a very very complex, interesting story. And because his death occurred, or you know, over twenty years ago now, it happened back in what nineteen ninety eight. Um, he's a, his, his is a story that's been completely forgotten. I mean, if you're into boxing and you're a big fan back in the 90s, you probably heard his name because he was featured on TV a couple of times. And his murder in the circumstances surrounding it did garner a little bit of attention at that time too. So you probably read about it in the magazines. But if you're an average fan from that since then or never really thought about it, chances are you've never heard of him. So that's why we're going to talk about him today. Washington, D.C., um, again, I guess this is just kind of the part where I get into a little bit more of the non-boxing stuff. Just to give some background, Washington, D.C. in the 1990s, like a number of other quote-unquote urban areas, basically big cities, uh, places that are you know away from the suburbs and the country and shit more or less, was one of the cities in the 1990s or the areas in the 1990s were crime really skyrocketed in the early 90s like you look at like murder statistics for instance and they in the early 90s just totally almost jumped exponentially uh there's a whole bunch of reasons for that obviously there's uh in the 80s and the <clears throat> the economic situation in the 80s and the disparity between rich and poor that continued to widen in the 1980s you know just it it didn't really stop in the 90s and in quote unquote these urban areas a lot of places were experiencing uh serious deterioration washington dc had a number of really bad neighborhoods that had been basically uncared for for a long time and so reuben bell had grown up that's the funny thing about this whole story is that he did not grow up necessarily in poverty is that he came from a kind of more um, middle-class neighborhood and family where he was well provided for. He did not necessarily grow up in want or need. He had a family that loved him. Uh, there wasn't really any sort of missing piece in his life that would seem stereotypical or that would be easily identifiable as something like, oh, well, that's that's why he got into crime. That's why he turned into a bad guy or something like that that seems to be typical of a lot of the stories that, you know, people believe, but he did not. Nonetheless, he chose to hang out in a lot of these bad areas in Washington, DC with a number of pretty icky people. And so a number of these fighters from around this time 
knew of Reuben Bell. They knew of the trouble around DC. Obviously, you mentioned Daryl Coley. Daryl Coley had, I believe, I want to say it was a brother and a cousin who also were fighters, and so they had also experienced a number of these, a number of these things. And they knew of Reuben Bell, like I said, and knew of Reuben Bell, like even apart from the normal trouble that was around DC, they were like, yeah, Ruben's pretty bad. Like he's, he's pretty, he's up in some shit. They knew of him as a troublemaker even. So just in the, in the context of like what this all means and stuff, I mean, this, he was right up in, in the middle of a lot of really bad shit. He was. And like you alluded to before, he didn't think that's crazy about it is that Bell didn't have to be involved in any of that. Like, of a person who usually gets involved in the streets, they don't really have a, a parental figure one way or another. They have, a, you know, grown up just with everything stacked against them and the odds, and they feel that their only, only way out is the streets. Um, where I grew up in New Bedford, Massachusetts, there was a lot of people that, that live that way, and a lot of, I grew up with a lot of people that way, so I kind of, you know, see the perspective of that. And Bell didn't have anything going. You know, according to the stories that we read and we discussed, and what his family said, Bell grew up in a middle-class family. Both parents were there. Both were working. It was during a surge in um, families, African-American families doing well for themselves at that point. And Bell was a part of that where they said out of all his siblings, he was the one that was basically like with a silver spoon in his mouth. Anything that he wanted, he got. And he was taken care of. Yet he almost like wanted like, you know, but he was still gravitate, I guess, towards the streets. And no one could understand why he would have to do that when everything that he, well, that you always talk about saying, don't you want this for yourself? Don't you want that? Don't you want to go for this? Like he would tell his sisters and tell other people that they'd be like, but you have this. What do you mean? And he didn't, it was something that they just couldn't understand. But like you said, once he went into it, like he went full on into it. It wasn't like just a dipping his toes a little bit into it and get into a little bit of trouble here and there. No, it was a full on jump into the streets. Yeah. So, I mean, some of the earliest stuff that I could find of him. Well, I'll, I'll just say flat out just because there's no point in, you know, beating around the bush or somebody's, you know, going to find that we're kind of going along with this long ass Jake Tapper article. But in 1998, not long after Reuben Bell was shot and killed Jake Tapper, who a lot of people know is the CNN guy. Now um, he wrote a very long and very information and uh, interview heavy article about Reuben Bell. And so uh, I would definitely encourage anybody to read it, but I mean, it's, it, it'll take some time. It's a long article. Um, but about the, the earliest stuff that I could find, because there's not a ton about his, his fights or anything in the article about the earliest that I could find about him in boxing was that when he was about 17 or 18 years old, he was training out of the Sugar Ray Leonard Boxing Center in Landon, Maryland. And at the very least, he was fighting for their amateur team. Now, of course, that, I guess that could po possibly mean he was only fighting there for a month or two months or something. You know, it, it really depends. And also when he was a pro, he moved around a bit. So it's not inconceivable that he wasn't really there that long. But nonetheless, I thought that was pretty interesting. And um, he made his pro debut on the undercard of this light heavyweight named Fabian Garcia, who fought a number of like late 90s light heavyweights, David Telesco, Ricky Fraser, Murky Sosa, Richard Hall, oh, very recognizable people was, you know, losing to them all. But nonetheless, it was kind of toward the end of his career. 
And that in and of itself is really not that noteworthy, I suppose. But a few weeks later, a Baltimore newspaper reported that Lou Duva had rushed the ring after Ruben Bell's pro debut and offered him a contract specifically because he liked Ruben Bell's body punching. Um, I, I don't know how true that is. That's just what the paper said. But I guess I could probably believe it. Uh, the Duvas have always been up on new prospects and stuff like that and trying to kind of in, inject young blood into their promotions and stuff like that, uh, apart from the last few years. And so I, I would believe it, I suppose. But you speak more to the the trouble that he was getting into. And basically where that starts is at least according to this Jake Tapper article right around 1989, 1989, he would have been 15 years old. And I mean, he gets, he's already getting in some pretty bad trouble. Barris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually Pat on new year's day, 1989, Around 1, 2 a.m. in the morning, Bell and about three of his homies put on some ski mask and attacked a guy at gunpoint, stealing his white Gucci tennis shoes, red coat, and about five bucks, according to the police reports. And Wasn't even know, worth it. I, I mean, this is what like guys usually do back then. I've A few of my homeboys from back in the day, I've heard stories of how they ran out and done things like, like it, it. It's it's what happens on the streets, all right? Is it good? Absolutely not. But this is what usually kids get into at this age. You know, you see any type of any type of city like that. I've seen it in New York City, people get mugged around like it. Um, these are things that happen by circumstance. You fall into that type of lifestyle, you get into it. But Bell, like I said, was getting full on into it. And as I mentioned before, his family just didn't kind of understand it. But he was already at that point. Bell, at some point, I guess he, he was maybe annoyed from being doted over. He didn't like the fact that like. He didn't feel he was enough in the street that he wanted to be, whatever it was, but he told his family that he didn't really belong to them. He didn't feel that, and that he always used to tell them, I need to be rich. I need to, I need to attain more for myself. Don't you want this? Don't you want that? And they were telling him, sure, but like you have people you can look up to to do that. Like he had an older brother who was in the army and was like, went to school and was doing well for himself. The rest of his other siblings were doing well for themselves. You know, his family, his parents, even though they split, they, everybody was like, still they you know he had a lot of people to look up to basically it wasn't like he had a he was a dead-end kid with basically born into absolutely nothingness where he had nowhere to turn except for the streets like he had a lot of avenues and opportunities but he didn't instead he kind of told them he shunned that and jumped right into it so anyways just to jump back into it now he exactly what you said he he ran over he robbed this guy and the cops within an hour i think arrested all these kids and they found a gun, and like you said, Bell had just turned 15, and that was around his first brush with the law. But it wouldn't be after that, because soon after that, he got into a gang called the Glass Manor Crew. And those were kids, like, neighborhood stuff. they go around robbing people, dealing drugs, and doing other, you know, goofy activities. But <clears throat> as that started, as he was running around doing stuff in the, doing drugs and all that, and like not doing, you know, selling drugs and doing things of that nature, that's when the boxing started. Because when he got into boxing, it was from the from street fights. Bell was a notoriously good street fighter. That was one thing he was really good at. And he was known for having a walk packing up. Apparently, from everybody that was known that knew him back then, he would wallop dudes on the street with one punch. And it was just easy for him. Like anyone that he would fight, he would just kind of one hit or quitter them, Tommy Hearns, if you will. And 
because of that, um, he figured to himself, hey, if I can knock dudes out on the street, I'm sure I can t- translate that into becoming a boxer, as a lot of people do. Yeah. You already yeah. know that. That's, that seems like the normal story for a lot of guys. Hey, hey, you know, I knock everybody out on the street. If I knock this motherfucker out, I'm sure I can go in there and knock anyone else too. Usually when that happens, the person that usually like knocks everybody out on the street goes into the gym and gets his ass whipped rather quickly. Bell, to his credit, actually turned out to be a pretty good boxer. Yeah, he, uh, I guess, I mean, it, it, it kind of like, you know, he's like 5'7", he's 5'8", or so. So he's not super tall, like not tiny, but he's not super tall. And he's topping out at like 160-ish or maybe a little bit more than that. So he's not a very big guy. Mm-hmm. And according to like this Jake Tapper article and some others, um basically it was a seemed to be a situation where he may have been underestimated on the street because of his size so he was just blanking fools out because you know yeah you know proving himself or whatever i don't know that's that's how they described it or that's how they kind of like attributed it but regardless he developed a reputation and and tried to take that reputation into a boxing gym um, and so you mentioned the Glass Manor crew, and that's because there's this section just south of D.C. or Maine, D.C., off of the Potomac called Glass Manor, one word. And apparently that's where they used to wind up hanging out. And he didn't live super far away, but he lived like in a different part of town. It was like Hillcrest Heights or something like that, where it was not nearly the the same kind of trouble, but that's they used to hang out in this troublesome neighborhood and so he took himself to the gym nonetheless and uh according to the guy who ran this gym he reuben bell had talent but that he had a chip on his shoulder and thought that he could do much better than he could and wound up having to learn the hard way in the gym that it took work that he wound up he was gonna have to really work at it and it wasn't like in the street where you could just blitz somebody and in any case it was it's kind of crazy to think about that he was carrying on his fight career, like you said, but then also at the same time, still getting into trouble. So then you wind up in 1991, the next time that he's mentioned as getting into trouble, he's arrested with a friend in Oxon Hill for possession of crack and a gun. And so he would have been only like 17 at that point. And already, you know, with possession of crack, that's, I think, in the early 90s. I definitely carry a sentence or... Yeah, like a felony. I'm pretty sure it's like an automatic felony. So, I mean, that's, uh, you know, not good. And then in 1993, he flees the scene uh, when police find weed on him. And it just, I mean, it just, like, devolved from there. He kept getting into trouble. And he also that was exactly the time when his career was starting. So what you alluded to earlier, when you said that he walked in with a chip on his shoulder, his original trainer, he walked into a gym owned by a guy named Jim Finley and Finley didn't already mention him too. Like besides having a chip on his shoulder, he just figured that bell was kind of a punk. Like he said that he walked in, he dressed like a thug. He had a way about him. And he said one time he picked up his jacket and when he picked it up, he said he realized it was kind of heavy. And I don't mean to laugh about it because it's the way he says it. He was like, I realized quickly that it wasn't 
you know, anything else. Like it wasn't something, you know, that you would normally suspect. And then he shook it a little bit and a gun fell out of it. So he knew right away that um, Bell was about that type of business. And so he didn't want him around. But like you mentioned, he, um, as he turned pro, he had already garnered a lot of attention and he had backing early on. He wasn't one of those guys that turned pro with no, with no, like, with no, you know, no way to turn or anything like that, where he didn't have any type of direction. No, he had direction and he was a part of a faction early on, kind of similar to the triple threat faction that I have a jacket of just, just throwing it out there of, um, the triple threat, which was Ray Mercer, Al Cole, and Charles Murray. Probably like a starter jacket or something like that, being that it's the, the early, early 90s. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would suspect I was going to say Charlotte Hornets because we all had a Charlotte Hornets starter jacket back then, right? Yeah, exactly. We all did. Everybody <laughs> had it. It was like one of like three. It was like either the Bulls, yeah, so, okay, so, the Hornets, or I don't know. So Bobby. we're going with Ruben Bell is wearing a starter jacket. Charlotte Hornets probably. That's <laughs> yeah, what I'm going with most you. likely. Right. Odds are that was probably what was happening. But Doom picks it up, and then he, he's, I think he described it as something automatic. You know, it's an automatic gun. I don't know. He probably doesn't even know what that means. But obviously something substantial gun-wise. And Reuben Bell's just packing, even going to the gym. But um, yeah, so actually it was not long after becoming pro. Um, a former real estate developer named Barry Lind stepped in and he began managing a number of Washington DC area fighters. So in the early nineties, he formed this squad <clears throat> that they called the hardcore, you know, core spelled like Marine Corps. And early on, it was Daryl Coley, Gary Payne, Reggie Green, and Ruben Bell. And then later on, they added a fighter named Eduardo Ortiz. And then, after that, I think Ortiz got kind of shifted out and there was a heavyweight named Corey Sanders and not the Corey Sanders that a lot of people might be thinking, you know, name probably. Not the one that knocked out Klitschko, but no, this one, Corey T. Rex Sanders, who was a gargantuan individual in himself, yeah. his nickname, did have a bloodbath with Andrew Galata on one of the, la one of the later episodes of Tuesday Night Fights. Absolute he bloodbath. <laughs> because of his size i mean he was like uh like six nine or something like that he was a large large dude and just a big guy too like big head no neck you know just a big yeah, dude yeah, yeah. and i think because of his size and because he had some amateur experience and whatnot he would get called into spar with a number of different fighters because of that you know like when you're it's just like when you you're automatically going to be on a list if you're like of a certain size especially mm -hmm. if there's a famous fighter who's fighting somebody bigger or something you know like oh we need another sparring we need sparring with somebody who's the same size you know etc cetera, etc cetera. so long story short Corey sanders had been a sparring partner for a number of different people throughout his career not at this time this was still pretty early on when he was like more of a of a prospect but if you that, if you heard of Corey Sanders and you're listening, and if you can't, and if you probably heard of Corey Sanders, it's because he was a part of that very infamous Mike Tyson pay-per-view where you paid to watch him spar, and that was Corey <laughs> Sanders, the sparring partner. <laughs> yep. And that's that's another sparring thing where you might know him from. And he at the time had just like a a, a no good eye. His eye looked awful and Anyway, yeah, he so he uh, he wasn't the guy who knocked out Klitschko, but also a, another way you actually might know him is because he had a uh, a fight with Deverell Touch Asleep Williamson on I think it was Friday Night Fights, and 
Williamson gave up like 110 pounds or something like that in the fight wound up knocking out Sanders. But, but like I said, by that point, Sanders had like an eye issue and I think couldn't see, literally see out of one eye. But it, this was, again, more when it was when he was younger and it was when he was like a prospect when he was uh, with this guy, Barry Lind, and the hardcore in out of oh, D.C. He, he beat Moskayev. <laughs> well, to be fair. I just had to look that up. For some reason, I kind of remember that. I just had to confirm it. Yeah, he knocked Moskayev out. And I was going to say, to be fair, you know, I remember Lance Whitaker slapping Moskev to sleep too. Oh, yeah, he did. <laughs> yeah, he was like, pap, pap, with like a couple slappy things. And I remember Moskev gazed on the canvas sleep. looking up like, where, what? I mean, yeah. I'm not trying to talk too much shit here. It was bad. But um, so this guy, this guy, Barry Lind, though, he was actually, I mentioned him and I mentioned this also because he just died about a month ago i didn't know this when we planned to do the show and i I looked it up and he had uh died just about a month ago how and why i'm not 100 sure but in any case uh he was a guy known as king of the hill around dc because he developed properties or owned properties around capitol hill in dc and not long after his involvement uh, with Reuben Bell's career, a woman named Barbara Wilkerson. She was also a real estate veteran. She was like the vice president of like the real estate association or something in, in DC. Uh, she joined the team as, as it were, uh, kind of, I guess, presumably to help funding. And she also joined as some capacity as a promoter because she was named promoter of the year by the NABF in 1994. So again, that's another just kind of portion about a crazy portion of the story is that it's not like Reuben Bell had no backing. It's not like he had nobody behind him or mm-hmm. a bunch of nobodies or nobody with money or something. He had funding, he had money. He had a team of people who were like business people too, who wanted to be involved in his career. And so kind of circling back just slightly to the Duva thing from his uh, pro debut one of the reasons why Duva said he didn't get involved is similar to that first trainer. He recognized supposedly that Ruben Bell was a troublemaker or that he had gotten into a lot of trouble and that he was not yet out of that portion of his life or whatever. And he made a comment to the effect of, you know, like, if you have friends, what are you going to do? Like, do you just get rid of friends? And the answer is usually no, you know, it takes a while and you can't just, go away from friends so i'm not gonna take a chance on that right now and you so know, that's and that's, the, that's the same story that a lot of guys have, have said over the years like that that actually just gave me a flashback to another fighter who um who was murdered who had potential early on in his career that was uh leon Spinks's son um yeah leon Spinks's kid leon calvin for example was his name and he said almost the same exact thing because his train it was either his trainer or his manager was telling him you need to stay off the streets you need to stop going to these parties you need to like you know yeah you have something going on with yourself you have a career and he literally told him he said listen you know he was like it's not mr am it's just not that easy he was like i can't just give it all up right away like that like it takes time i can't just break away from these people and but to yeah just to add to your point that's exactly true man it's it's crazy to think that like it's not easy for someone just to automatically all of a sudden they're gaining attention they're doing well with their career just to give up completely what they had going on before this because there's always going to be a pull for them to come back to it yeah and i mean i i guess that's the kind of um 
that's the conundrum of it. You know, that's the paradox, whatever you want to call it, is that it does it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that somebody with so many opportunities would, yeah, would squander so them. But that's... Barry Lindy was would talk to him. The, the his man, the one that would end up becoming his manager, was discussing with him earlier because he was concerned with his with his outside activities and his life and what he was going on to. And he would tell him, he was like, listen, you know, I, that's not me. I don't understand that life. This is what I can offer you. And like, we need to, you, you need to figure something out here. Like, what do you want to do with yourself? Do you want to like stay over there or do you want to actually try to make an opportunity and go with this? And uh, Ruben Bell told him, listen, you know, I'm leaving all that behind. I want to like make a go of this and let me see what I can do. Because these guys saw his potential. Like you mentioned, the dude as everybody else did. This kid had ridiculous power. You know, there's not a lot of footage of his fights, but he was knocking cats out left and right. And everybody that was, he was fighting, he was flattening. So, and even though if you look at his record on box record, stuff like that, you're going to see like the guys he find be like, well, look at his opponents. They couldn't have been those good. But it wasn't so much that his, what he was doing in the ring as a pro fighter, so much that what they were showing, people were finding his potential in the gyms and other stuff like that, like his amateurs and other stuff. Like Bell had God-given power and real true potential that, a lot of people saw that, you know, something, if he can keep his head on straight, he can really go far in this. And even with that, he was able to, you know, when, 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 um, when Lindy took care of his career, he was able to bring him along enough and keep Bell out of enough trouble that he was able to bring that to a fight with Paul Vaden, a future champion on, on um, Tuesday Night Fights. And, uh, I feel particularly qualified to speak on Paul Vaden, considering he's one of the few San Diego fighters, and I'm from I'm from San Diego. Everybody Absolutely, from San man. Diego. That's one of your homeboys. Like everybody from, and actually, I I only found out somewhat recently. He went to my he went to my high school. I didn't even know that. Did you ever meet Paul Vaden? No, I never did. And I was like, what? He went to he went to Patrick Henry. What the fuck? I didn't know that, but apparently he did. And uh, dude, I was gonna say every like every san diego fighter is somebody from somewhere else who wound up settling in san diego because it's beautiful and everybody loves it there archie moore was from i want to say georgia wound up settling in san diego ken norton was from i think texas and wound up settling in san diego like all of the fighters who wound up being associated with san diego were not san diego fighters unfortunately paul vaden on on the other hand that being said darth vaden he was <laughs> uh you know i i think that he definitely during like the nineties was somebody who uh, especially kind of like in the Southern California and Las Vegas area was known. Um, and I mean, to get a, to, for Ruben Bell to get a shot at Paul Vaden, he was definitely only I mean, a limited amount of fights at that point. Yeah. He, no, he was only like 20, no, or something like that. He wasn't even that experienced and it wasn't a title fight, but it was obviously the kind of fight that would put you in contention for a title or move you. Into uh, yeah. Well, I think it was an eliminator. I even remember yeah. reading about it in a, in one of those box and illustrator or something. They had a quick write up about it in one of those magazines. Yeah. And yeah. And I, the way that a lot of these things work in a lot of the alphabet organizations like we've discussed before is that like they're the little satellite belts or the little minor belts that wind up corresponding to the larger belts or that if you win them or win an eliminator, then it puts you in the top 15 or top 20. And then you then have a blah, blah, blah. You know, it's all. Well, and even like we've discussed before, it even meant more so in the 90s, those belts meant more, like especially right. – if there was a clearer US, path. Yes. If you were a USBA champion or NABF champion in the 90s, 
not only were you a top contender for that for whatever organization, but USBA usually what was the IBF. So I think so. Yeah. Not only yeah, not only were you a top contender for that strap, chances are you were going to be featured on either ESPN or Tuesday Night Fights and a main event slot defending that title because that was like known as a legitimate lower ranked belt to for the bigger belts. So yeah. Right. They, they were probably not as likely to call it a world title or whatever, but they would at the very least make. Oh, the no, they would always mention it. Hey, for the NABF title, so-and-so is going to be defending tonight against this top, number two contender, right. so-and-so. And looking for a title shot, the NABF champion is defending again. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was just there was a clearer path to like a, mm-hmm. a larger, more mainstream title at that point. And so uh, the good old days. Yeah, when I guess there was just even and even then, that's the funny thing is that even then the writers of the '90s were like, "Oh, what a fucking mess! This is awful! Absolutely, this is terrible!" Man, it's and, hilarious. I mean, Ooh, compared to other times, it kind of was. Even around today, their heads would explode. <laughs> oh my! I well, some of them are, and some of them just don't even fucking write anymore because they yeah, can't handle just... that shit, and I don't blame them. <laughs> Holy hell, dude! It gets gets my blood pressure up. But no, it's it's uh regardless you know he gets this shot with paul vaden who at the time is undefeated and also he's undefeated so a matchup between two young undefeated fighters it's a big opportunity for reuben bell and according to reports i I, i've never seen this fight so i couldn't say but according to reports he fights really well until the last portion of the fight and kind of fades Paul Vaden himself in later interviews and after the fight basically says he's a really good fighter. I uh, had to be really careful, but he started gassing out and his power also started kind of fading down the stretch. And it winds up being that after losing a majority decision, uh, Ruben Bell says, you know, I was, I was messing around. Uh, I wasn't taking it as seriously as I should have. I was still hanging out with a bad crowd, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it seems as though, like maybe, you know, there were a, a number of points during his career and during, I guess, his life where he seemed to acknowledge that he was having trouble and that he could get away from this trouble and should, but just for whatever reason, didn't do it. His um, his manager was actually pissed off about that in a couple of articles I read. He mentioned, he said, yeah, like what you just alluded to, Bell did not train at all like, properly like he should have for that fight. He thought that he was going to walk in and knock Vaden out really quickly and easily, and obviously that wasn't the case. But just on talent, just on natural talent alone, he made it kind of close because I think the fight was like a two-point fight kind of either way. And um, the fight's on YouTube. It's one of those things that's like kind of broken up into, into sections, but it's on YouTube. So if you're curious enough, you can check it out. That's I think that's the only Ruben Bell fight up on YouTube at the moment. Um, there used to be one of his fight with Simon Brown, and that's the one I wish was back up again because that fight was an absolute war, but we'll get into that in a little bit. But um, the fight with Paul Vaden, like you mentioned, yeah, Bell kind of squandered that opportunity. But something interesting to mention is that Vaden, like you said, he was like, you know, Bell kind of petted out after a while, and he was able, he was like, I was able to outbox and whatever. But he also noticed something too was that Vaden said that Bell he did notice that Bell carried an entourage with him. And he said that a lot of his boys from DC and other areas like being really rowdy came up and started acting a fool at the fights and stuff. And Vaden said something to the effect of, he was like, I, he was like, I have homeboys too. He was like, I just keep a distance from them. 
yeah, I, I, I remember reading that in that article. And I mean, even the other fighters were like, man, that guy, that guy's pretty hardcore. Yeah. And when you get that from a lot of fighters, especially ones you're like training with who probably come from like similar backgrounds and other like that. And when people, they, that's almost like the Jeff Sims effect. When people just like, kind of like, bruh, I like you, but you, you're just a little too much, man. I'm sorry. And just got to back up. That's, 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 that's heavy. Yeah, you're going to get me killed one of these days, man. Like, I, yeah, I can't, man. I can't hang like, out with you. I mean, you attract lead, bro. I just can't be hanging with <laughs> you like that, you know? Yeah, I can't hang out with you, man. You're going to get me killed. But like, was... I like you, but I just can't hang with you. Yeah. That's what my dad told me as a kid. He, he, my, my parents never shied me away from anybody or tried to hide me from like schools or whatever, but they always told me, they were like, be cool with anybody you want to be cool with. He was like, just know you can be friends with them, but you can't hang with them. I never forgot that. I understood what they meant by that, you know? Oh, man. Oh, I mean, and, and this is just, it's, it's, a really, it's a really crappy example, unfortunately, of like a, a guy spiraling. Yeah. So we, we kind of mentioned the trouble that he was getting into earlier. So this was the Paul Vaden fight, just to be specific, was in May of 1995. But in 1995, he caught charges for assault with a dangerous weapon theft and felony threats and so uh basically you know right around this time right around the vaden fight was a not a very good time for him and they'd also mentioned that by the time he was like barely into his pro career he'd already spent time in, a, in juvenile detention and in prison for cocaine possession like we had said earlier that any cocaine or crack possession is pretty much like an automatic felony or automatic jail time at a certain point in the 90s. And so a few months after the Vaden fight, uh, according to this article, and actually I read about this too in a different article, uh, it's just that Jake Tapper had way more detail than anything I could find. Uh, at, at almost 3 a.m., uh, it was in July, a couple months after the Vaden fight, Bell was playing in the street in the water from a fucking fire hydrant when somebody he knew was creeping up in a car um and we heard this I, story before right and they kept driving by or whatever and so he got nervous and this car went and parked and a few minutes later the guy in the car he was a guy named john boogie buchanan was shot dead and bell was the suspect of the shooting so he wound up spending about 19 months in jail awaiting trial before being found not guilty but the caveat to that, and here's the kind of crazy thing to me. I'm not saying I know what the truth is. I, I don't at all. But the newspaper reports, when they were talking about the, the charges that he had caught for murder here, they would said that uh, they referred to him as an, he was an innocent man. He was sitting in jail for charges that he was innocent of, and he was never the shooter. Whereas in this Jake Tapper article, According to him and in interviews with the jury four person and the defense attorney, according to him, uh, the defense attorney said she regretted getting Ruben Bell off of the charges and that she thought that it was like that it was wrong, that that she thought that it he was guilty. And that later on, the jury four person said that they learned of details right after the trial because they couldn't be presented during the trial for whatever legal reason, you know, the it's what it sounded like to me. And I'm not a, an attorney, but <laughs> I've seen enough motherfucking law and order people. 
what it sounded like to me was basically uh, his defense attorney somehow managed to get some sort of evidence disallowed at, at the trial and that this evidence, had it been allowed, would have clearly pointed to Reuben Bell's guilt in this situation. Uh, but nonetheless, they said that they felt later on as though they should not have, have let him walk free and that they let a really bad dude walk free. So yeah. I, I'm not saying I know the truth. Again, I have no idea. I wasn't even aware of that one. Without, I mean, I knew of, the, I knew of the, the whole hanging plane in the fire hydrant, car driving by, dude ended up dying after that, but all the circumstances from it is pretty... Uh... It's, it's pretty wild. Like, it's, it's pretty gnarly. And I and mean, that did and, like uh, delay his boxing career a little bit too, because I know there was like a little gap yeah. there. That was it. He sat in jail for 19 months for a little over a year and a half. So he he literally sat in jail waiting to be to be tried, waiting charges, and wound up being found not guilty. So I guess he had a good defense attorney. Whatever happened, the defense attorney did too good a job or whatever. Um, well, anyway, so I yeah. again don't know what so, happened. Here's a but, crazy clip right here. Let me. I should post. I should put it for the ear. This this comment, the U that I just brought up for this article because I, I was just like, let me let me check this out again. The U.S. Attorney's Office painted Bell as an out and out menace to society with a big ego problem. Prior to the shooting, one of the more bizarre U.S. Attorney documents described a scene in which the defendant donning yeah. a bikini panty bathing suit <laughs> was. Ex was exhibiting his muscle-intensive body to any and all observers in the in immediate area as he played in the water spouting from a fire hydrant. Yeah, and so Wait, that's what a, a way to describe. And While so that's, was, a, that's another thing, is I think that because of the nature of some of the description of this shit from the, from the U.S. attorney, the defense attorney was probably just like, listen to this shit, dude, are you yeah. kidding me? I mean, that's what I, I would have done. I would have been like, Your Honor, can you fucking hear this shit? Because, Listen I to mean, this, like, how they describe it. Though. That's wild. While he was frolicking in, in this urban underwater, <laughs> while he was frolicking in this urban water world, clearly displayed on his right bicep was a tattoo depicting the words R-A-T, underscored by two dangling boxing gloves. Rat or rat man is the defendant's self-ordained nickname. Boxing <laughs> along with drug dealing is his game. Yeah, dude, it's like it's literally like they're writing it like they're trying to write a script from one of those crime shows you like. I'm bro. saying, man, really. Ratman is his name, and robbing people is this his game. game. Yeah, it's some fucking stupid. Come on. Well, and you know what? The funny thing about his nickname is too is that I saw two different uh two different explanations for how he came up with his nickname. So Fred Sternberg who's a PR dude for top rank or was, I'm not sure if he has much to do with him anymore, but he did for a long time. Uh, he said, because he had some involvement with the hardcore, then he said that he had a leather bomber jacket from the, the hardcore crew, which I thought was cool as fuck. And I, I mentioned that to you because I said, keep your eye out. But in any case, um, he said that... I don't know if I believe this, but he said he got the name Ratman because he ran the streets like a rat. And I, th I thought, nah, that, that sounds dumb. His sister, in an interview, said that he got the he nickname Ratman because he liked cheese. That sounds, I, I 
probably probably i would go with some urkel shit but (laughs) that actually sounds about right especially if he had that nickname as a kid that would i would get it it yeah i don't know that sounds like that kind of just sounds like what sternberg says that kind of like that sounds like something an old white person would say he ran the streets like a rat yeah Yeah. that's just or or like when when um (laughs) uh Another person who we could probably end up profiling on one day, um, Frank Fletcher's brother, Anthony Fletcher. Yeah. Who was on death row for a number of years for murder. His nickname was Two Guns from Boston. Well, and, there's, and their story was, was injured. Their mom, too. Their mom handling. Oh, the oh yeah, and... yeah. Their crazy ass mom ringside going fucking buck wild for every fight. I mean, it's, it's a whole, that's a whole scene. A whole, that's a whole episode in itself, the Fletcher family. But, um, that's a good idea. The uh, Anthony Fletcher was nicknamed Two Guns, and the same thing when they were in j- when um when the prosecutors are trying to like trying to trying to hit him up stuff like that. Well, he's nicknamed Two Guns because he always carried two guns on the street, whereas <laughs> he had that nickname since he was like an amateur in boxing because he was known for just being a really sharp shooting puncher and because boxer. he carried two firearms with him yes. on his person at all. They times. always they, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh god dude yeah it's like i said it sounds like some old white person shit so i'm not i i'm i'd probably sooner believe the cheese story personally but whatever no in case fred sternberg winds up listening or watching this piece broad no no worries i'm just saying it sounds like bullshit but regardless um you know the crazy thing and i guess some kind of good thing about being incarcerated for 19 months and awaiting trial or whatever was that according to him, according to Ruben Bell, that time, because he said he was looking at 35 years for murder, he said that that time, since he was expecting to be found guilty, he kind of made peace with it and said he was going to turn his life around. And so when he wound up being released, he did according to some turn his life around and he wound up actually going and uh going to lancaster pennsylvania so he got out of dc in 1997 not long after getting released and he went to go train in lancaster pennsylvania with a guy named sorry let me pull up his barry stumpf s-t-u-m-p-f an older gentleman and there's a few photos like I generally do. I'm, I'll try to find some good photos to post with some of the please listen to me posts about the podcast. But um, there's some good photos of Ruben Bell standing with this trainer and he's like a conditioning coach too. And Barry Lind or Lindy, however, his name was, was said, he was a, a fitness expert or like a, a fitness guy who liked to stay in shape, but also had many years before that been an amateur fighter. And so knew boxing, knew what kind of conditioning it took, et cetera, knew what kind of lifestyle it took. But the fact of the matter was Ruben Bell needed to get out of DC. He needed to get away from the people that he was hanging out with. He needed to get out of bad area, et cetera. He still visited home because Pennsylvania is not that far from DC, but, um, Nonetheless, he was spending a lot of time outside of D.C. and wound up getting a, a, a fight w- against a guy with a losing record named Robert Thomas and Glenn Burney. But then he was lined up for a fight against former two-division titleist Simon Brown, 
Jamaican dude who had a good punch and but had fought uh, out of the US for a number of years and had a lot of experience had more than 40 fights going in uh you know always was, in fun fights man can you think of a yep. bad can you ever think of a bad simon brown fight not off the top of my head i mean he had some classics with tyrone trice oh my you god know. the trice fights bro and you, you know, I mean, not that not to go off course really quick no you know, let's you, do you that talk, because that's what we're here for about, <laughs> when you want to talk about some bad blood and talk about you know how people are just like oh you know uh, well for example recently like how wilder how Wilder took for, for Fury and other fighters when they don't want to like be reciprocative. Oh, you beat me. Let's have a hug type deal after a fight. Trice took that to another level. He hated Brown so much, like literally hated Simon Brown so much. Not only would like, did I think he still hates him to this day for that matter, but like he still kept all the words he said about him, which was some really heavy shit. And I remember reading somewhere that I think after their first fight, he wouldn't talk to his wife or even like sleep near her or look at her or something like that for like a long ass time because he was so disgusted with everything about life from the Brown fight. Like he was that pissed off. You want to talk about some hatred, you know? Yeah, there were... That's the type of stuff Simon Brown brought out of people, all right? <laughs> you know, he was so, and, and, and here's the cra even crazier thing about Simon Brown. So according to Bernard Hopkins, who knew Simon Brown really well, and Bernard Hopkins had trained with him, had sparred with him a number of times. That's that's the thing about Bernard Hopkins that a lot of people didn't realize because going into like the Trinidad fight, that was kind of like when Bernard Hopkins finally got somewhat mainstream to a lot of people. Like he had been around for a long ass time, but he had been considered kind of like the the other, even though he had held the IBF belt for a long ass time, he would just kind of be considered not the star, not that, you know, kind of boring, more of a technician. Nobody gave a shit. And so even so, he had been around, dude. He had been training and sparring with tons of people. He had been all the way up to light heavyweight and sparring with light heavyweights up in Philly and around Philly, et cetera. So he had been around, dude, and he had been uh, training. Like I remember hearing stories about him uh, knocking out Charles Brewer in the gym and shit like that years ago. And I don't even know if that's true. It was just just It rumors. probably is true. You but know, you know I'll tell it. you something, else, bro. I'll tell you something else too about Hopkins. Um, years, we're going way over a decade of decade ago over here. But when I was when I first moved to the city, New York, I used to frequent a bar called Blue Room, which was kind of a divey bar off of like 60th and Second uh, Avenue, you know, close to the Upper East Side. Anyways, when I used to drink over there, they I, I wish I remember this dude's name, but there was a guy I met one time. And when I say is to get, I'll totally admit, I used to get absolutely hammered there on Thursdays and Fridays, but I was like, I'm a friendly drunk. Like I, I become really cool with a lot of people. Like I'm not like one surly or anything like that. Like everybody ends up liking me. So I forgot this guy went up to the jukebox and put on some eighties tunes that I really, that I really liked. So I like complimented him on it. And we started like talking a little bit and I could tell right from the jump that he was kind of like a street dude, but like serious. And we're talking, talking, talking before I knew it um he told me that he had when he had spent time and he was from philly he had just got out of jail not too long ago but he found out i was in the box and he told me he was in the joint with hawkins and i was like really i was like you are doing you know like you spent time with b hop and he was like yeah and he was telling me he told me a couple of stories bro how like hawkins just knocked out a couple of dudes just laid them out or whatever it was but he said that hopkins had respect with everybody in jail 
I'd believe it, dude. Yeah. Hopkins ain't really the type of dude that's got a lot of play in him, dude. I'm not gonna lie. No, no, no. He said that Hopkins was like highly respected when you know at that at that joint. Really I I 100% believe it, dude. And he and so the reason why I bring up Hopkins too is number one, uh, Ruben Bell winds up getting lined up with a fight with Simon Brown. And the winner gets to take on IBF champ, then IBF middleweight champion Bernard Hopkins. But on top of that, because Hopkins knew Simon Brown, he said in a few interviews around the time, he's like, look, I know a lot of guys around the middleweight division. I know a lot of guys from around this area. And let me tell you something, Simon Brown's quiet. He seems like he's like unassuming, but this guy is a motherfucking hungry animal. And he's like, you get him in the ring and this guy is a goddamn animal. And and that's how oh, yeah. that's how he was describing Simon Brown. So if that's Bernard Hopkins saying that about somebody, and so Simon Brown was already a veteran at this time. He had like 45 fights or something. And so a lot of people were considering Simon Brown washed, like the guy's done. It's the late 90s. Like he's already been, you know, since like the 80s, he's been around. He's done for. And I think Bernard Hopkins was trying to warn people at the time, like, watch out because he ain't that done. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Like you mentioned, Brown was was a warrior. Was he past it at this point? Sure. Um, the Terry Norris fight was about three and a half, four years ago at that point, when he when he scored that massive upset and then subsequently lost the belt back to him. And from that point, he also had that incredible war with um, Vincent Petway for the junior middleweight championship, which um, Brown was finished laying on his back in um, infamously or famously, whatever way you want to look at it was laying on the crowd unconscious while he was still throwing punches in the air, man. Like, you know, just subconsciously, which was crazy. And apart from that being one of the gnarliest knockouts ever in the history of boxing, at least caught on tape, that shit was just a foul-filled, crazy fight. That was a war, man. What an absolute scrap that was. Like, just headbutts, elbows, pushing, shoving, tripping. that was a battle. Mike Tyson on commentary, fresh out of jail. That fight's awesome. Like, I don't know if that, I, I'm not even sure if that version's on YouTube. I hope it is. Which one, the one with Tyson on commentary? Yeah, I think yeah that's the Showtime version. I'm not sure. But uh, either way. It's famous because brutal. Tyson called Vincent Petway. He kept on calling him Petterway. Yeah. <laughs> Vincent Petterway, Petterway, Petterway. Yeah, yeah. But um, Shit's brutal. Very, very good fight. But Brown was on the backside of his career at this point. And like you mentioned, Bell was, come at, was out of jail. He just had a tune-up fight. But this was a huge opportunity for him. And a very winnable one for that at that matter, too, because with all, like I meant, wait, leave you mentioned already on the show with all the issues that he's had, all the shit that he was into, all the stuff that was holding him back. He still had that God given potential and that God given power that and he was still a young guy. You know what I mean? That if he could put it together for this fight, this was the opportunity for him to do it. And so this would be fight 53 for Simon Brown, Simon Brown. whereas uh Ruben Bell was 13 and one yeah. so I mean that's a hell of an experience gap especially fighting somebody who's a, a, a former two division world champion I mean that's that's pretty gnarly shit so that's the experience gap was massive and so he finally gets this shot though in Pikesville the National Guard Armory and he winds up this was actually one of the first things you told me about, uh, because I think that this fight used to be on YouTube and you had pointed it it out 
And then you and I started talking about it a while back, but just never kind of circled around to it. But it's a brutal fight. They're trading knockdowns. And so just as supposedly, and according to reports, just as Ruben Bell looks as if he's got this in the bag or he's starting to pull away and starting to kind of make the difference with his own power, Simon Brown's starting to fade, he quits after the fifth round saying that he he broke his right hand. And later on, uh, supposedly, he told his trainer and manager that he had gotten tired and that he had had nothing left and started, like, you know, just panicked. I could see panic from that, for sure. For sure. Absolutely. So the fight's on Fox Sports. Like you mentioned, this is the biggest stage for him. fight was on Fox Sports against the biggest um, high-profile opponent of his career. And Bell, like you mentioned, man, it was an absolute war, bro. One of those things is Lee Groves greatly coined a closet clack. Closet classic, right? And back and forth, man. Well, just a vicious, vicious fight that Bell was getting the better of. He dropped Brown early. Brown dropped, you know, dropped him as well. But it was back and forth. But Bell generally was like winning. It looked like the tide was going toward Bell. And Brown, you know, also obviously had that reserve and was still like coming on. But it was just a back and forth fight that Bell, being the fresher fighter and being the younger guy, you thought he was gonna have a chance. And then when it ended, it it really did make no sense because if you watch, you know, if you watch the fight, I, right after it ends, like both announcers, I believe Barry Tompkins was on the call well, along with Rich Murata. Like, what happened? And yeah, yeah, they're just they're completely shocked. They're like, Ruben Bell, stop! Like he's retired on his court. Like they're completely shocked by what happened. They're shook, as everybody else is too. And Bell cited, like you mentioned, a broken hand. He said, you know, he broke his hand. He went through that. And when he mentioned with um. With Murata, with Rich Murata in the post-fight interview, he was like, yeah, you know, I broke my hand. I messed it up. I forgot what round it was, all this other stuff. You know, I'll be back, though, yada, yada. And no, it was because he was deeply exhausted. He completely fell apart. Um, he was really, really fatigued. He had nothing left. And like you said, he was afraid of what was going to happen in the subsequent rounds because he had no energy, like absolutely nothing. And um, Lindy, you know, kind of mentioned in articles saying that, like, I think if he had sucked it up and tried to like, you know, relax a little bit, he probably could have pulled himself to see it through. But as we're about to talk about, I guess, you know, that probably wasn't going to be the case because there's a, probably a good reason why he fell completely exhausted and got really messed up so quickly as he did. Yeah. So, uh, so not too long after retiring after the fifth round in his corner against Simon Brown, who went on to uh, get a shot against Bernard Hopkins and lose yeah um, man that was one of those first late night hbo boxing after dark shows i remember as a kid trying to stay up for it and i think i fell asleep in the hasim rock on jesse <laughs> ferguson fight because come on man look it started at like 11 11 wow. 30 there was three fights on i what year was this again 97 98 so i'm 13 i'm not gonna <laughs> like yeah, i could dude, try to hang but i wasn't yeah and Lampley, I remember at the end of that fight, though, went pretty wild because even though Simon Brown looked awesome in the back-and-forth war against Ruben Bell, against a prime Bernard Hopkins, he was completely out of his death because who wouldn't be at past their prime like that? And um, that was a vicious knockout showcase for Hopkins. Yeah, and, I, and at that point, Hopkins was definitely the executioner for sure. And he, he was, was trying, and he had a chip on his shoulder and a point to prove. And this was like, he was mad. Was, he was going yeah. through managers and promoters mm -hmm. like fucking hotcakes. 
you know, basically just had this old dude, Bowie Fisher in his corner. And that was pretty much and it. And this was his first time on HBO as an A-side, you know, not the Roy Jones. Yeah, fight, had, had so. been on Fox, had been on Showtime and had had not been able to secure any sort of long-term deal that was meaningful yeah. or that wound up suiting and him. so he took his aggression and on poor Simon yeah, Brown. Yeah, poor Simon Brown was like, you know, well, I'm dispatching you. But then, so then Ruben Bell's watching this, and uh, not too long after losing to Simon Brown, he says that he started having difficulty going to the bathroom, which I have absolutely no idea, but he had a cancerous uh tumor in his rectum and he wound up having to go in and get treatment for this obviously and responded well to the treatment but was in ongoing treatment for this tumor uh going in from 1997 to 1998 and so into 1998 um you know this this situation that he might not have had any involvement in where nobody really knows 100% for sure because of all of the shit that transpired afterward, which we'll get into in a moment. But basically life caught up to him. His past caught up to him. Karma caught up to him. However you want to describe it. He got, he got got dude. So just, uh, I, this was kind of difficult for me to to suss out myself. So if you don't mind, I'll just read straight from this article because it was like, it's almost- Dude, it's, it's, a, it's a, a lot to go through, man. And it's a it, confusing like, situation. And not only that, you're gonna, if you're trying to go through it, you have to go way back to like probably before. It, yeah. it's, it is a lot to deal with, but yeah. So I'll just take a moment and I'll just read straight from here. And hopefully that makes a little bit more sense than me trying to explain it. It's It's tough. So in any case, um, these this kind of group that Ruben Bell had run with, so the Glass Manor crew and a bunch of his friends that Ruben Bell had run with had already died or had been gunned down, killed, died in accidents, etc. So all of his friends wind up dying. And he's also involved, according to a number of other people, in kind of just countless encounters on the streets between whomever while selling drugs, while getting into it with gang type of shit. And so in any case, this, uh, in 1994, there was this 19 year old kid named Tomar Cooper locker. And he was a public school bus driver in Maryland. Um, and not long after they had gotten into, I guess there was some sort of gunfire exchange with Bell and his friends and somebody else. And so this was probably a regular, somewhat regular occurrence, I would imagine, considering they were all pretty much always strapped. But not too long after this, I'll just start reading now. Soon after, in 1994, Tomar Locker, a 19-year-old Maryland public school bus driver, was sitting in a mercury, mercury topaz with his girlfriend, 17-year-old high school honor student, Keisha Craig. Craig, also from Oxon Hill, worked tirely, tirelessly at both school and after-school jobs, and her future looked bright. Until Smith approached them in the car, where they, uh, Smith was, I'm sorry, one of Reuben Bell's friends or uh, acquaintances, approached Locker and his girlfriend in their car, where they were passing the time 
paging through a high school yearbook. It is unclear if Locker and Smith were friends, but after that day, Locker no doubt wished he had never even heard Smith's name. Suddenly, two men burst out of nowhere, coming at Smith with a 45 caliber semi-automatic pistols. They opened fire. Smith was killed outright. Craig and Locker in the wrong place at the wrong time were seriously wounded. Craig managed to drive the Topaz to Greater Southeast Community Hospital. Her boyfriend was admitted to the hospital, three gunshot wounds to the chest. His condition was grave, but he survived. Craig wasn't so lucky. Flown by chopper to Washington Health Center, she died soon after. Fowler was convicted of the murders of Smith and Craig, sentenced to life in the Maryland Department of Corrections, Annex and Jessup. Alleged accomplish, and Fowler, I'm sorry, also, that, like I said, a lot of names, Fowler was somebody else who knew Reuben Bell. Uh, sentenced to life in Mar Maryland Department of Corrections, Annex and Jessup, alleged accomplish Southeast Williams, his nickname was Southeast, was acquitted, but later killed in a car crash. Locker testified in both trials. The guy whose girlfriend died testified in both trials. In newspaper accounts, Bernard Grimm, Williams' attorney, referred to Reuben Bell as the enforcer of their gang and intimated that Bell, not his client, might have been involved in the shootings of Smith, Locker, and Craig. The suspicion that Bell played a part in those killings may be why, uh, on Monday, February 23rd of 1998, police apprehended Locker in South Carolina on an army base for the murder of the at, at the hospital. So the murder at the hospital that we're talking about here is, that's referred to in this article. Eris, what's that? To sum this all up, bro, like, after this whole murder and everything like that, I think Tamar Locker, the way he found out about Bell was, was it because of the Simon Brown fight? So, so yeah, like... Started first off is because I think he found out that he watched the fight or he caught clips of error. Anyways, this is how usually a lot of people who have sorted past get, get back and how their trouble sometimes comes full circle because... Total coincidence. Total coincidence, exactly. You just they end up doing something or whatever it may be that they, you know, get it. To, they end up on television for whatever, you know, for a sporting event, whatever it may be, and it may be their nickname or something, whatever it is, they get recognized by somebody. It was like, yo, is that so and so from blah 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 blah? Yeah, it, hey, that actually is. And then something gets exposed from that. So tomorrow, Locker, I think it was either watching the Simon Brown fight or hearing about it and then hearing from there rat man rat man rat man he just heard that nickname knew about it looked around started fishing around found out realized hey this is the same dude that we're um this is the same guy that you know almost killed me and killed, killed my girlfriend years ago but... it got bad over at this point man because at that at right at right around then bell and like you said in february of 1998 bell had a good prognosis at this point he was diagnosed with cancer as we mentioned but the prognosis was good. Uh, the tumor was shrinking. They said they were going to have surgery to remove it. And after that, he can resume training again and go through whatever he's going to go through. So on Thursday, February 5th of 1998, Bell went in for a, re for a treatment, for a radiation treatment. His fiance got a call early on saying that he was late, but he was late for other treatments before. So it wasn't not unusual for that matter. He showed up when he showed up. I think it was around 11 a.m. He was supposed to show up. So he shows up for that time. And at that point, that's when Tamar Locker walked in as well. Because Locker had, like we mentioned, he found out about Bell, then he started doing some research, stalking, found out a few things, and caught a beat on him. So he 
started tracking him, realizing when he was going for treatments because he found out he was sick, all this other stuff, and was able to um, walk in on him. So when Bell was waiting to get his treatment for radiation that day, Locker walked in as well and caught Bell's attention, charged at him with a gun. Someone said that it looked like just like a metal finger coming at somebody and unloaded a bunch of rounds on him. Not only did Bell get hit, a few other people around him got hit as well, but Bell was the main recipient of everything. And um, from there, he was rushed actually by ambulance around the corner to the, to, to the ER section because it was such a bad hit that they figured it would be quicker taking him by ambulance around the corner than it would be actually by pushing him through gurney, through a gurney, through all of the um, hallways. But any way you put it, man, his um, past caught up with him that day, crazily enough, in a hospital while he was waiting for treatment. One and so I guess the benefit, you know, where I, I got to look up some of the court stuff in the court case. So Jake Tapper didn't have the benefit benefit of that because it hadn't happened yet. And uh, so Locker, Tamar Locker, wound up saying a little bit more, going into more detail about what happened and what he did and his mindset and stuff like that. I mean, it's it's pretty crazy. But what what according to him happened was that when his girlfriend was killed and when, so again, just to kind of reiterate, there's a lot to take in here and a lot of names, a lot of players. And it's like, whoa, 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 you, you might be kind of confused. So there's Ruben Bell, right? And he's often the centerpiece to a lot of this gang activity or like violent criminal activity that's going on with his him and his boys in Washington, D.C. And according to... uh uh, according to Tomar Locker, he was sitting in a car and another guy had been walking by just another guy. They didn't know, or according to court papers, they didn't know uh, was walking by and two people came out of nowhere and shot that guy who was walking by. And in the act of doing that shot both Tamar Locker and killed his girlfriend. So according to them, this was just wrong place, wrong time they happened to be sitting there in a shitty place. That's it. But then one of the people who had run out and done the shooting, according to Tomar Locker, was wearing a bandana around his face. On the bandana around his face had a skull and crossbones in some kind of unique design. That unique design, according to him, was the tattoo, or was one of the tattoos that Reuben Bell had. And this particular tattoo that Reuben Bell had was uh, supposedly Reuben Bell's tribute to one of his friends who had been killed or a couple of friends that had been killed. And that symbol was also on his, uh, his bandana that he put around his face. This bandana was the bandana that he chose to wear doing the ring walk against Simon Brown. And according to Barry Lindy, he tried to talk him out of wearing it. And he said, don't wear that. You know, it's, uh, it's tacky. It looks like shit. You know, it doesn't make you look good. And that Reuben Bell insisted on wearing it. So according to the court papers, this is how this all went down. That Tomar Locker recognized that symbol as he, he just happened to be watching, I guess. He knew of Reuben Bell, recognized the symbol on the... On the kerchief what a crazy crazy set of coincidences huh and so and there's actually more to it too the shooting there was a little bit more to it 
it could because Jake Tapper had only had kind of like the preliminary details. Don't get me wrong. He did a lot of interviewing and put a lot of work into this, this I'm sure. But uh, more came out at the trial. According to Tomar Locker, he basically was in a like PTSD spiral ever since his girlfriend had been killed uh, four years earlier, three and a half, four years earlier, and that he was constantly reliving it, that he wanted revenge, that he felt as though it could bring her back, and that all sorts of delusional type of behaviors and beliefs that are often associated with really severe PTSD. And basically, he said that finally he had seen this show where Reuben Bell's going to fight Simon Brown, sees the handkerchief, and decides he needs to do something about it. According to him, he wanted to go talk to Reuben Bell because he found out he, in a local paper, they had covered that he was, that he had cancer and was getting treatment at the Washington uh, Cancer Institute. And so he says, I'm going to go talk to him, but brought a gun because he knew Reuben Bell was a bad dude and might try to hurt him or hit him or something like that, he says. So he said he went there and waited early and sat in the lobby and intentionally sat right next to the video camera because he said he was afraid and was afraid Reuben Bell was going to do something. But then according to witnesses, like you said, that's pretty much what happened. Reuben Bell was sitting there waiting after he'd gotten there late and that Tomar Locker just charged him and started shooting and then also a little bit of the extra out of the court was that he walked over and was like cold as fuck, just shot, you know, pop, 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 yeah. you know, and shot him, uh, shot him in the face to the point where his face had to be reconstructed for the funeral, which is, I suppose, a normal thing. But they were talking about that in this paper in terms of the they take pride. they actually said they take pride in the way they can reconstruct people's faces because, hey, this is D.C., Exactly, because they had so much experience doing yes. it is the thing. Yeah, not, not that's even a direct quote. They said this is DC. Yeah, not because they just happen to have a knack for reconstructing the bones of people's faces after they've been shot in the face and murdered. No, you do it, it enough times so you become pretty experienced at it. Yeah, See? because it happens so often. So uh unfortunately, that's that's pretty much where it wound up kind of ending. But then the last final portion of this that is just the the icing on the crazy ass fucking lunacy cake here is that Tomar Locker winds up of course being charged with murder but then not only that he what's that so he gets off doesn't he with insanity dude and it even goes further like it wasn't even so he he claimed insanity which which itself is like successful first of all claims of insanity in murder cases is like less than 1%. And then it's like 1% of those where they're actually even successful. It's so rare that it actually happens. And then Tomar Locker winds up being, you know, found not guilty by reason of insanity. And then like a month later is found by doctors to be totally sane. Incredible. Like, wow. And so needless to say, Ruben Bell's family is uh, devastated. And they... Yeah, that's a, that I even realized that because all I've read, like, to be honest, like, I didn't even know that he was claimed to be um, totally sane after that. I saw the insanity claim. I've yeah. One, but... It was like a whole saga. And, and I mean, from a legal perspective, again, not an attorney, 
but from a legal perspective that seems like some type of shit that would need to be studied for years like what the I mean, fuck for what sure. so how here? does that even work out then that like okay so he was claimed by by insanity so now he's shown that he's sane so you can't retrial him again so or, according like, so to it's over? like i don't the newspaper said that it was apparently felt as though uh that he felt he felt as though there was a legitimate threat to his life and that the PTSD had caught i mean in some ways from a psych, psychiatric perspective it was kind of an advanced point of view considering it was back in the late 90s but even so there's so many holes it, it's pretty it's pretty wild dude it's pretty fucking wild so I, I guess the there is no moral, there is no real linear narrative here. It's just that Ruben Bell got involved in so much really bad stuff, and just as kind of like it, it appeared, yeah, it caught up with him. Just as it appeared, maybe he might have been able to pull himself out of it. And that's what uh, some people were saying too. That it looked just about that that point where he realized, you know, hey, um, especially with the cancer diagnosis too, that like. Um, I got to leave the past behind me and try to like take advantage of my career or whatever the opportunities I might have from here to do that. And it got completely snuffed out. And and I believe he also had, I want to say two young children. I know yeah, at least one, so, yeah. but I think two. Um, so, I mean, I, again, like I started out saying at the start of the show, we talk about this and we talk about it in a way where I hope people don't get the idea that we're being flippant or dismissive or think it's funny because it's not funny. But, you know, we have fun researching this and we have fun, you know, reliving it and teaching it, whatever. But we do also like to acknowledge that, like, this is a human. They left behind people who were sad and that people who were, who were, who cared about them and were devastated. And like we also have said a few times during the show, he was loved and taken care of and, you know, cared for and provided for. And those people were devastated when he was gone. Absolutely, man. You know, by all accounts, even though there, there's varying ones about people saying he was a really bad individual, the people saying he was loving stuff like that, there's people that still really care about him at the end of the day. You know what I mean? He was a family person, that there was a family that he did leave behind as any person that, that gets swiped down the streets. There's always some people grieving for it on both sides of the spectrum. So, it, you know, that's where it kind of ends up at. From a selfish point of view, too, man, it would have been pretty fucking cool to have a hard-hitting middleweight in the late '90s and early. Well, 2000s. I mean, that's what I think about too. Is that like Bell was still young; his career was young. He didn't take any really type of punishment. He had extreme power. From watching the Brown fight in the small clips, I watched in the Vader one because it wasn't that exciting. Um, he had p extreme potential. He would have made for a lot of fun fights. I'm not going to say he would have been a champion or anything like that, because I don't know. That especially the division was getting deep. Hopkins was about to take over completely, and chances are Bell wasn't going to break any of that. But um, he definitely would have made for some fights. I mean, think of the guys that were coming up around that time, too. You had Antoine Eccles, Charles Brewer, like you mentioned, um, a host of other, you know, there was a host of other middleweight contenders around that time that, uh, that Ratman would have had a lot of good fights with. Yeah, Whether he would have won sure. or lost, it would have been fun fights. Yeah, and and you know he probably would have figured into that pretty at, 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 right around that time with Fox and everything still involved and like oh really for sure I can see him if he already had that fight with the fight with Brown it was as fun as it was and everything that went with it he definitely could have I could see in a couple of years after that um, if not King, fight King for a title or something you know 
somebody would have picked him up or he could have, I could have seen him be like a future opponent for someone say like, you know, when David Reed and Fernando Vargas were on the come up, totally. he definitely could have been like one of the opponents for that. And that would have been probably would have been a fun fight in retrospect. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. And, and it's, there was a little bit of a gap that he left not only in, in boxing, but specifically in DC boxing in that area. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it you know, was. that it's a very, it's a very interesting era for DC boxing for the, for that whole time period. All those guys were extremely talented. All the fighters, then the champions, the contenders, all of them, all of them had a little bit of an, like, you know, outside activities too, though, that kind of hindered <laughs> them to a degree. Even ones that ended up in it's a rough hall, area, man. Jones, it was a very rough area, a very rough time, but it was also, again, like I mentioned, a hotbed of boxing. They were featured and they were popular. And that was, you know, at the time being, man, they were they were a dominant entry in the sport. And I'm glad one of the guys that, unfortunately, for various reasons, didn't get a chance to um, realize his full potential in the sport. We got to feature, feature him today and focus on him. Yeah, and, and also I think that one of the cool things, you know, apart from obviously the tragedy behind this, but one of the cool things I hope for nostalgia wise for a number of people who listen is that it was recent enough that they might be able to remember some of it or might be able to remember some of the stories and stuff like that. So it's just a little bit of a kind of reminder, you know, it's, it's always, it's always fun to, to remember fighters who otherwise aren't going to get remembered, especially. Oh, absolutely not, man. I mean, that's what that's what we're here for, bro. Let's we take we kind of take pride in that mantle, you know what I mean? Of um the fighters who like Hank Kaplan used to say, man, the guys who everybody's forgotten, he wants to keep those names out there and make sure that they're not forgotten. Try and do the same thing. Whether it's sure. int- whether it's a good story, whether it's a bad story, whether it's interesting or not, if it's interesting enough, we're gonna talk about it. Well, that, I guess that's the really cool thing is that there is absolutely no shortage of interesting stories. And I mean, yeah, dude, uh, again, I, I really appreciate you like putting in the work, dude, because I know both of us, we, we do a lot of like hours of reading and searching around and trying to get our story straight and stuff like that before we do these. So I, well, it's boxing, you, man. man. You know, there's so many layers and so many different things and spectrums to the sport. Like, I'm always learning something new every day. Like, you can always think, oh, there's not enough to learn. There's always some new shit that you're going to pick up. Totally. The other day I found out, I was tweet, um, messaging you about some fighter I've read about that did some wild stuff that well, I'm sure we'll talk about for a future episode. I had no idea about the other day. Like, it's there's so much man it's just the it's just never ending never never ending it's a it's a bottomless well from which to draw for sure dude i again i i really appreciate you taking the time and and doing the work and speaking of you know not being forgotten i hope that everybody who enjoys our podcast and especially these kinds of episodes if you don't forget go on to youtube where we have our own little page, our own channel where you can subscribe. And also we're on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, all of those things where you you can subscribe to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. Those are always helpful, but we're on social media as well. So you can follow my boy, Eris Pina, for instance, on Twitter at the Punch Zone Eris. Follow me, Patrick Connor, Patrick M. Connor. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, you know, all of that good stuff. All of those things are helpful and appreciated. Eris, again, I appreciate you, my friend. Hey, man, always a pleasure, bro. This was a good one today. Definitely, for sure. I, I always enjoy doing these things, dude. So we'll be back. We'll do more stuff. 
might have to might have to preview this weekend. We'll we'll have to see, but got a lot of shit going on. Yeah. Meanwhile, we'll talk soon, bro. Later. Later, everybody. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.